The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, September 16th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump had to admit it. Obama was born in... By the way, have you seen the lobby, the well-appointed lobby? No, but seriously, of course, Donald Trump just came out and said that if you stay nine nights, you can earn a tenth or at least a free continental breakfast and an upgrade. But no, really, the proprietor of the Trump International Hotel had to admit that America is not currently led by the Obama International Presidency. But how can you blame him? Seriously. That was his point. How can you blame me? Much like the overstuffed chairs and sumptuous high thread count sheets at the Trump International Hotel, there was enough blame to go around. Well, enough meaning that she was smeared. Hillary Clinton and her campaign of 2008 started the birther controversy. I finished it. I finished it. You know what I mean. Where does he come up with this? Actually, the mainstream media, gullible as it was in giving the Trump International Hotel a free commercial, was more credulous about the Hillary started it claim. In fact, they were downright accessories after the fact. I want to play a clip from Morning Joe, and I'm going to stop it the second that Morning Joe himself starts laughing. There is Hillary Clinton's March 2008 interview with 60 Minutes, where she did not question Obama's birthplace, but appeared to give a less than convincing answer in regard to his religion. You don't believe that Senator Obama is a Muslim? Of course not. I mean, that's, you know, that there is no basis for that. You know, I take him on the basis of what he says, and, you know, there isn't any reason to doubt that. And you said you take Senator Obama at his word that he's not right. a Muslim. You right. don't believe that he's a Muslim. No, I mean, no, why would I? Implying, There's no, right? no there, there is nothing to, to base that on, as far as I know. Just... <laughs> when I heard the laughter, tell me if you were thinking what I was thinking, which is that he was going to laugh and say, how is that less than convincing? That's what I honestly, I heard the interview, I'm like, you're calling that a less than convincing answer? That is not what happened. Here's what happened. How Trumpian is that, Mika? That was At least as far as I yeah. know. Yeah, no, I. I that is that so, is such. Something's that's going pretty on. crazy. <laughs> yeah. Something's. I, as far as I know, Gene, I'm not. Listen, Gene, I'm not saying yeah. that you have robbed more banks in Washington D.C. There's no uh-huh. evidence. I mean, as far as I know, I. I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> well, I guess we all just see the world a little bit differently. Joe and I, Trump and I. Possibly you and I, 42% of the electorate and I. On the show today, I spiel, actually kind of debate, a Politico author who says Hillary has a risky deplorables strategy. That is his headline, but it is my rebuttal. But first, it's a trip to the musical Wayback Machine with Chris Malamphy. Nineteen sixty-eight was definitely a high water mark for music. Uh, so many of the great songs that you think about, so many of the great music events, uh, date back to then or about then. But you know what? If you go look at the number one songs on the Billboard charts, you might be surprised at what you'll find. Some great ones, and well, Archie Bell and the Drills. Joining me now is Chris Malamphy. 
He writes the why is this song number one column on Slate. Hey, Chris. How are you? I'm great. Okay, so it starts off with a Beatles song, 1968, and ends up with a Marvin Gaye song. Not just a Marvin Gaye song. I heard it through the grapevine. So with those bookends, you would say to yourself, what a great year for music. And you wouldn't be wrong. And yet, I don't know, maybe we could quickly dispel with that Archie Bell and the Drills or that Bobby Goldsboro song named Honey or... Paul Murriott and his orchestra. What's going on with some of these bad songs? Yeah, 1968. Okay, I think the reason I wanted to talk about this, I was thinking about 1968 recently because you think about like what just happened at the two political conventions this year, 2016, and all the controversy. 68 is a very fiery year politically, right? We have the assassination of RFK, the assassination of MLK, the you know DNC convention in Chicago that turned into utter chaos. And yet, when you look on the charts, other than these, you know, the great Marvin Gaye song you mentioned and a couple of other great ones, and there are some legitimately great number one songs this year, there's a lot of schlock. It's almost like the charts were an oasis from everything that was, you know, worrying Americans in 1968. For example, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, Love is Blue by Paul Mario and his orchestra. Oh, Mario. Sorry. Yes, yes. The T is silent. He is French. (laughs) Too bad the song wasn't. (laughs) Interestingly, to my knowledge, and I had to double check this, he is the only French artist, French French, uh, not like French descent, France Uh French. No Terrence Trent Darby? Was he French? No, not Terrence Trent Darby. Actually, if you want to talk about people who nearly topped the chart, who uh, are French, uh, Daft Punk. Uh, oh, if they had yes. gone to number one, but they peaked at number two, they would have been another French French artist. But French uh, French. French French, not like French descent. Paul Mario and his orchestra. This is a great story. Uh, Love is Blue. It's an instrumental number one hit. One of two, by the way. The second one being Grazing in the Grass by Hugh Mesekela of South Africa, which we'll talk about in a second. Yeah. But Love is Blue. Originally, it was a song performed with vocals in 1967 for Eurovision. And get this, it was written by a French singing songwriting team. Uh, it was per- performed by a Greek singer named Vicky. And it was the Luxembourg entry in Eurovision for 1967. By the way, for those of you who are Eurovision obsessives, it came in fourth that year. The winner that year was Sandy Shaw's Puppet on a String. The UK entry. In any event, <laughs> it has vocals. And then Paul Morio and his orchestra do what many orchestras were doing in the 1960s. They recorded an easy listening, effectively elevator music version of this same song. Mm. Yet this is the one that becomes the massive American hit. We're not talking a small hit either. This thing spent about a month and a half at number one on the American charts. It was the number two record of all of 1968. It's got harpsichords. It's very uh, kind of Baroque. uh, And yet it's basically, you could argue, the biggest elevator music number one song of all time. Yeah. Trying to calm down an agitated populace. And then uh, not right on the heels of that, Otis Redding sitting on the dock of the bay was on the heels but then we get honey by bobby goldsboro and tighten up by archie bell and the drills i've never heard either of these songs i don't think well okay tighten up uh tighten up almost could be an instrumental if not for the fact that uh, archie bell is talking all over the record uh this is uh, a record where he's basically describing the record as it's playing to you so he's saying uh, this is the way we tighten up here's how we tighten up on the drums here's how we you know tighten up on the guitar but there's and, a long there's a long history of that dance to the music by sly and the family sure. stone or james brown <laughs> frankly yeah, what the yeah. record sounds like more than anything is you know james talking over the record like you know in get up i feel like being a sex machine where uh-huh. he's saying you know can i take 
take him to the bridge. It's right. it's that kind of a record. Um, it's it's actually a pretty good record. Tighten up. Cool. Uh, uh, and uh, and utterly improbable number one hit. In fact, my favorite detail about uh, Tighten Up is that when it went to number one, Archie Bell was serving a stint in Vietnam, and he was in a hospital in West Germ uh, West Germany, uh, recovering from an injury when oh it was God. the number one song in America. Hi everybody, I'm Archie Bell of the Trails of Houston, Texas. We don't only sing, but we dance just as good as we want. In Houston, we just started a new dance called the Tighten Up. This is the music we tighten up with. First, tighten up on the drum. Come on now, drummer. Want you to tighten it up for me now. As for Honey by Bobby Goldsboro, what a schlocky record. This is a record that often tops polls for some of the worst records in rock history. See the tree, how big it's grown, but friend, it hasn't been too long. It wasn't big. I laughed at her and she got mad. The first day that she planted it was just a twig. It was a number one pop and country hit, a big trend, by the way, in 1968. You had uh, records like this and Gene C. Riley's Harper Valley PTA that were enormous hits on both the pop and country charts. It was also a good year for uh, Glenn Campbell, who had a number one album with Wichita Lineman that contained that awesome top five hit. Uh, so if you could like sort of put one toe in country and one toe in orchestrated pop. Mm. Uh, you could have a pretty big hit in 1968. Honey has kind of terrible lyrics. It's a it's an ode to a man's wife. Uh, he at one point calls her kind of dumb and kind of smart. Um, it's really got kind of terrible lyrics. Uh, it was written by the same songwriter who did Little Green Apples and uh, The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia. And I'd say this is probably his weakest record uh, as a songwriter. So you touch on you, Masakela. Okay, I don't know if Grazing in the Grass is a great song, but he's a great trumpeter. He's he a great artist. So it's good that he's number one. And I'd put Herb Alpert in a, a similar category. Yes, it's interesting that we have two trumpeters going to number one back to back, except it's an interesting study in contrast. Okay, let's talk about Hugh Masekela first, South African artist. He's married in the 60s to Miriam Makeba. He's kind of royalty among African musicians. And, oh, and yeah. He is, he is like the most famous uh, of the South African musicians who had a uh, wide purchase in the in America, I yes, would say. Yes, yes. And he's, yeah. he's recording for an American label at this point. Uh, Raising in the Grass is our other instrumental number one hit. It couldn't be more different from Love is Blue, the Paul Mario record I mentioned earlier. Uh, it's, uh, it is... A very lilting record. I, I wouldn't call it as light as Love is Blue, it's, but it's very lilting and summery and beautiful. Great trumpet from Hugh Masekela. Um, interestingly, Grazing in the Grass, that was not the last hit version of that song. It went to number one by Hugh Masekela in the summer of 68. Uh, the following year, 1969, a version with words. The words were added later, by the way, which makes it the opposite of Love is Blue, a song mm. with words that was turned into an instrumental. This instrumental added words and a group who Seems called themselves... Seems harder to do it that way. It does, Stripping right? out the words, you just strip out the words. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Anchorman, you've heard the other version. It's uh, by a group called the Friends of Distinction. It went to number three in 1969. Don't tell me it was the song he played on jazz flute. Uh, no, it wasn't. It was the song that's playing at the pool party where uh, he talks about how he has many leather-bound books. As for This Guy's In Love With You, 
that record could not be more improbable because here's the important part. Herb Albert sings on it. Herb Albert is a trumpeter who, by the time uh, 68 rolls around, had scored about 17 hits on the Hot 100 that were all instrumental, everything from The Lonely Bull to his cover of Spanish Flea, which, by the way, later became the dating game theme. Uh, <laughs> exactly. You know it well. Picture people kissing the air right now as we speak. Bachelor um, number one, if I were an ice cream cone. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and let's not take that any further. <laughs> this Guy's in Love With You was a song that Herb Albert sang on. It's by Burt Bacharach and Harold, Hal David. By the way, it's the first Burt Bacharach number one hit. He would go on to score several more, including Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. But this is Burt Bacharach's first. And... It was recorded for a TV show that Herb Albert was appearing on, and he wanted a short sequence in the middle of the show where he did something nice for his wife. So he sings this song to her on a beach. And the following day, the day after the TV variety special with Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass, CBS was inundated with calls saying, where can we buy this record? And it became an unlikely number one hit, Herb Albert's first number one hit, not an instrumental, despite all his prior hits, which were all instrumentals. You see this guy, this guy. In love with you Yes, I'm in love Who looks at you the way I do When you smile I can't tell We know each other very well How can I show you I'm glad The two Beatles songs on the hit, one one is uh, sort of a non-challenging, this is, at the point, this is what we know the Beatles for, Hello, Goodbye, great song, great pop hit, not moving the needle in terms of uh, what they're doing with music, but the last song of the year is Hey Jude. Hey Jude, yeah. And that is, I mean... From what I know about Hey Jude, just beyond the musicality, the length was unprecedented. It's unprecedented, and still to this day, it remains uh, the longest song ever to go to number one on the charts. There's a technicality there. There have been longer songs. For example, American Pie in the right. early 70s was an eight-minute song, but it was divided on single if you bought you the 45. you literally had to flip over the 45. I remember Correct. that. It made Correct. no sense. So if you bought the yeah. album, the Don McLean album, you got all eight minutes, but if you bought the single, you had to flip it over, and many radio stations played the short version. Whereas... Beatles being the Beatles in 1968, they were the exception to every rule. This is a seven-minute, 11-second song, and most radio stations to my knowledge, I was not born at this time, but reportedly would play the whole version. And you can understand why. I mean, what makes Hey Jude a great record um, is that last four minutes of chanting and clapping and uh, the orchestra swelling. It, it goes from a very good moving Beatles song, uh, famously, as I think everybody knows, a song Paul McCartney wrote about John Lennon's son, Julian, as Julian was uh, facing the divorce of John and Cynthia Lennon. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it goes from a very heartfelt song by Paul to a majestic Beatles song. The, the last four minutes are the part that really make the hairs on your arm stand up.
Okay, there's one other song I want to talk to you about. And this one, I might have an insight that rivals that of your own, Mr. Malamphy. Simon and Garfunkel take Mrs. Robinson to number one. And that charts in June, uh, June 1st, right? Now, at this time, of course, the great lyric, where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio, and he had been retired. But a reason why I think this lyric struck a chord is that the Yankees had always been a great team, but a couple years prior, they had begun to lose. They made the World Series, I think, three years prior, then at a losing season, then at a losing season. Now, if you look at the Yankees' record in 1968, it was a winning season, but they started off the year as losers. And in early June, in late May, they were, you know, 21 and 24. And this is when the song becomes number one because people are really nostalgic for great Yankees teams and Joe DiMaggio. Your thoughts on my theory? Can I pour cold water over all that? <laughs> yes, yes. Paul Simon has admitted in multiple interviews because he gets asked <laughs> about the Joe DiMaggio line all the time. Look, I could have said Mickey Mantle, but it just doesn't scan. Right. Where have you gone? Mickey Mantle <laughs> doesn't sound right. Joe DiMaggio sounds right. So that's number one. He has said in subsequent interviews that he does think very highly of Joe DiMaggio. Of course, Paul Simon, a Queens boy, uh, a New Yorker, uh, born and bred. Uh, and he, he thinks of Joe DiMaggio as uh, an American hero, a quiet American hero. And he's, he said in interviews, you know, that there's a shortage of, you know, quiet American heroes like Joe DiMaggio. Um, However, let's not forget the song's called Mrs. Robinson. It's called Mrs. Robinson because it's featured in The Graduate, uh, Mike Nichols' great late 1967 film. You noted, by the way, that the song doesn't go to number one until June of 68. Um, It was knocking around for a while. The final uh, recording of uh, Mrs. Robinson wasn't complete until February of 68, even though the movie comes out way back around the holiday season of 67. So you hear Mrs. Robinson in various forms in uh, The Graduate. Yeah, but I think Mental version. Benjamin's going through an airport. Right. And, yeah, There's a lot yeah, of G D D D. You know, they're they're repeating the riff. They're repeating the D D D part. The goo goo. Cuckoo Cachoo part. Um, but Paul Simon didn't actually finish the record until a couple of months after the movie was in theaters, which is why you don't really hear all of Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate. Uh, interestingly, Paul Simon originally wrote it as Mrs. Roosevelt, and it wasn't even a song he submitted to Mike Nichols at first. Mike Nichols was already using old songs like Sounds of Silence and April Come She Will by Simon and Garfunkel, and he asked them, could you give me some new music? They showed up with a couple of you know minor songs that Mike Nichols didn't really care for. And finally, Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel says, well, we have this other thing we've been working on called Mrs. Roosevelt. And Mike Nichols says, you have a song called Mrs. Roosevelt and you're holding that one out on me? And of course, they changed it to Mrs. Robinson and it becomes one of their very biggest hits. Do you know about Roger Ebert's original review of that movie? I do not. He originally he dismissed it and originally said of the music, it was, quote, instantly forgettable. He Not later Roger revised, Ebert's. Yeah. Later revised his opinion. Yes, I, I dare say he did. <laughs> Chris Malamphy writes the Why Is This Song number one column for Slate magazine, and we're counting down the hits. The year was 1968. Thank you so much, Chris. You got it, Mike. Anytime. And now, in the spiel, I wish to ask this question. 
When Trump says, my supporters aren't racist, they're hardworking Americans, as if the opposite of racist is hardworking, isn't that assertion, you know, racist and also un-American? All right, this wasn't a rhetorical question. I'll give you the answer. It is racist, but it's actually not un-American. There's a long history in America of thinking that. I was thinking about issues like this as I read an article in Politico today. It was by Bill Scher. Headline, Hillary's risky deplorables strategy subhead behind her comments, a sea change in how Democrats really think they could win. I disagree with the assessment of risk. I do not think it's risky. I disagree about his specific comparisons to past presidential performances. I disagree with much. But instead of just ranting and raving, I have invited Bill Scher on to disagree with him to his face. Bill Scher, he's the senior writer at Campaign for America's Future and co-host of a Blogging Heads TV show. And I took my complaints right to Scher. First, I asked him to lay out some of the history of sucking up to the white vote, which, mind you, is interesting, but in my opinion is not applicable to the deplorables comment. Anyway, here is Bill talking about how Barack Obama, like Bill Clinton, like Jimmy Carter, like every Democrat, didn't tell bigoted white people they were bigoted white people. He did not confront them, but rather placated white grievance. You know, in Obama's famous more perfect union speech, he talked about white resentments and sympathized with them as stemming sure. from economic anxiety. He didn't say you're a bunch of racists. Uh, so for Hillary Clinton to do this basket of deplorables thing, when you read the full context of her remarks, she says, and you know, she's walked back to half, but this is what she did say at the time, that right. half... Half are irredeemable because of their bigotry, and the other half are good working folk who are trying hard and are upset by changes in their situation. She separates the racism from the economic anxiety, where many people conflate the two, including Obama. Bill Scher notes that the demographics of America have changed. A smaller percentage of white voters are in the electorate, so that calculation could be driving Hillary Clinton. So while Bill Clinton made a point to have this moment where he lectured black people or at least one black person, Sister Solja, Hillary eschewed such a moment. Bill Scher argues that the Sister Solja moment was the opposite of the baskets of deplorable statement. Remember, the baskets of deplorable statement was Hillary, for the first time ever, telling white voters, you're wrong to dislike minorities, but vote for me anyway. My only uh, parallel there is that you know, Bill Clinton, you know, in a different time <laughs> of, of the country, took a moment to show white America he was not going to be under the thumb of civil rights leaders to the point of embarrassing Jesse Jackson in his own house. The problem is I think Sister Soldier, that whole thing is a horrible comparison. Sister Soldier said that black people should have a week where they kill white people. Hillary Clinton said half of Trump's voters are racist, sexist, and xenophobic. I think this comparison is totally apples to Rotten Tomatoes. Or as I put it to Bill, here is Hillary Clinton pretty much sticking to a defensible comment. And in Sister Soldier, here is Bill Clinton attacking an indefensible comment. The quality of the comments are the things that are different. <laughs> well, you know, Jesse Jackson wouldn't agree with you there at the time. Uh, he thought Bill Clinton was being very unfair to Sister Soldier, that people should not have taken the comment literally. It was a bit of a glib comment that she wasn't really saying 
black should kill whites. You should look at it in the context. Right. It was of so the outrageous that the argument was you can't take it literally. Whereas Hillary right. Clinton's comment can be and has been proved to be defensible literally. I just think they're totally different things. Right. But why logically would a white working class voter, whatever his opinions are, even if he maybe has some anti-Islamic opinions, and you could define that in a lot of ways that we could even debate if it's racist or not. Fine. Why would that person hear Hillary's comments about half of Trump's voters and say, you're talking about me? If they're not a Trump voter already, and if they are a Trump voter, well, they're a Trump voter. She's, her, her election strategy doesn't depend on flipping committed Trump voters. Well, to the extent that it's a risk is that people won't get the nuance. You know, Trump was out there today with all these veterans all claiming that she's talking about them right. on the on the mere dint that they are working people. Uh, and uh, and so if, if, it's, if it's casting a wider net than she intended, that that could be a negative. And if the pool of people you're talking about is more than the exit poll suggests, as Nate Cohen argues, that's also an added risk. But do you think they will? I mean, from what you know, I mean, I think it's different from uh, these people cling to their God and cling to their guns because that could be people who haven't decided who to vote yet. I mean, do you think undecided Americans in that demographic group will hear the deplorables comment and make the connection she's talking about me? Well, the pool of undecided voters is probably pretty small at this point, has been my guess. I, I don't know how many people out there really, really weighing the option between between Clinton and Trump. They might be weighing, do I vote Clinton or Gary Johnson or Jill Stein? Or do I vote Donald Trump or Johnson or Stein? Or do I do either of these things or I stay home? I imagine the overlap of people really weighing Clinton or Trump is decidedly small. I think this is probably largely a turnout question on both sides. Who am I juicing by talking about this? And who am I driving? Is a Republican who is working class and really isn't hot on Trump, are they then motivated to vote Trump because they're mad at Hillary? Uh, I mean, that would be a risk of, of talking about it. And so that's it. I mean, that is it. If Donald Trump succeeds, that when Hillary Clinton said half of Trump voters, what she was really saying is all of white working class voters then yeah, Trump will have a small victory. But I don't think that will happen because in this election, we have seen persuadable voters following Trump's brio and his persona, but we haven't seen many examples of voters who aren't already in the Trump camp following his logic, or in this case, his illogic. And if that's called a risky strategy, well, I think it's a lot less risky than most of what's being talked about this election. That's it for today's show. Chris Berube begins each day as GIST producer with a full tour of the timeshare he's investing in in Maui. Fellow GIST producer Mary Wilson then raises serious questions about if a U.S. passport would apply to getting to Maui. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, frequently calls meetings where his only agenda is to get us to buy some more Herbalife. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, founded the Panoply Network as an elaborate scheme to advance the mattress, razor, and audiobook companies that he holds huge positions in. The gist, it is my favorite podcast, as far as I know. Umperu Deperu Duperu, and thanks for listening.